Welcome back to season 11, episode 8 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the extraordinary lectures from the DocSF Experience 2023. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, and I will be your host for the podcast. This next episode is a little different. We will be talking to you from the Bone Tank, which is our version of a shark tank. It's hosted in partnership with UCSF Health Hub and Mark Goldstein, who will introduce the concept. And we have an incredible and qualified group of panelists, two panelist groups, in fact, that will be taking startup companies through their paces. The winners will be automatically quarterfinalists at the Digital Health Awards at the HLTH conference in Las Vegas. And Blaine Workentire will be our moderator. Please welcome them all to the DocSF stage. Pleasure to be at DocSF. First of all, hats off to Stefano. This event worldwide is the event for innovation in MSK and more. And it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So what we've done this year for the first time at what's called the Digital Health Hub Foundation, we run what's now the world's largest healthcare award show. And we do it at the HLTH conference in Las Vegas. We started here in San Francisco. We had Chase Center two years ago. We're now at, in Vegas. Seems like all the teams. We all uh, seem to be moving to Vegas lately. Last year, we had 1,500 companies, 1,000 judges, 3,000 people in the audience. Really big event. This year, it's going to be even bigger. We have 13 award categories, and it's gone great. But after five years, we said, let's shake it up a little bit. And we thought one of the most important categories that we were not honoring was surgical innovation, and in it specifically in MSK and all the work that DocSF is doing. We also added a, an award for longevity and one for health equity, but we added an award for this here because we said this is damn important, and we want the world to understand how it's so critical that uh, physicians and take this new technology that's coming out and so that we can cure what's coming in an increasingly older world. You heard amazing words from Daniel Kraft, who's one of our executive producers, but without technology, the surgical suite is not changing. So we wanna basically promote the poop out of it and we're going to. So what's going on today is you're gonna see three or four companies that Blaine is going to introduce. And all of these companies are automatic quarterfinalists in our big contest. We expect a hundred or so companies to apply for this category. And these are some great ones. And it's an absolute pleasure to be a part of DocSF and to make everyone in the world know the importance of what's going on in surgical innovation and innovation and what you guys are doing. So Blaine's been doing this for a while. Basically, he's a trained in sports medicine. He started something called Brain Lab and took into orthopedics in 2001. Wow. And 19 patents, basically in uh, surgical navigation. He is the guy to lead this bone take, really ask the right questions. He's going to bring up a bunch of other panelists. He's had seven successful exits over the last 15 years, so he knows a little bit about entrepreneurship. Here's the inaugural bone tank, and here is the uh, bone tank man, Blaine. The reviewers up here, if you, if you wouldn't mind taking a seat, I'll be sitting with you. We're gonna have uh, three companies in the first set and then there are three companies in the second set. The goal here is really to understand like, are these companies finding a good product market fit? And so be thinking to yourself, how would you utilize this application or these companies and what do you see for their futures? And uh, hopefully we get a question or two from each of the panelists for each of the companies. I think we're gonna start with Deep Structure. 
Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I was supposed to do a quick introduction, but ultimately I think everyone should look up uh, these esteemed uh, colleagues here. We have Sid from Stryker. We have Stuart Simpson, who used to be the CEO of Stryker, now with Think Surgical, Thorpe Davis with Ortho Virginia, and Peter Schilling from Dartmouth and Hitchcock. Please look up their backgrounds. It's really impressive group of people here. We have five minutes for each company, and then we're going to do a question and answer at the end. It's about 15 minutes, about a one-minute question for each. So keep your questions pretty tight, and let's get on with this. Let's have some fun. Startups are the way to go. This is an exciting time for startups, and you'll notice a lot of common themes here, but the idea is hopefully to, that we pick for yourselves where you think this future is going to go. We're going to start with Insight Surgical. Fantastic. Hi, I'm Derek Amanatula. I'm an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Stanford and co-founder of Insight Surgical. Insight Surgical is an artificial intelligence platform that utilizes computer vision to objectively document healthcare information. Today, healthcare costs $4.3 trillion. And inside all of that cost exists a $505 billion blue ocean data opportunity to basically reduce the cost and waste of healthcare. We currently use subjective verbal data, basically like the operative notes I write every single day to define the value of healthcare. What we believe at Insight Surgical is that an objective video data pipeline will finally allow healthcare to increase safety, reduce cost and cost variability, and improve outcomes. Insight Surgical, I said, is an artificial intelligence platform. We can retrofit an operating room in a weekend. We take up absolutely no floor space, and we allow a software service pricing framework. At the end of the day, what we do is we take cameras and extract objective data, apply machine learning and computer vision models to that, and extract information from this space. The things we can do is track the proximity of people to the sterile field, the room traffic that we know is correlated with infection. We can track objects as small as needles or as deformable as laparotomy sponges, which turn out to be the most dangerous objects in surgery. Perhaps the most valuable thing we do is we can actually time the phases of the room and feed information that you would normally pass on verbally to your staff to increase the performance of your team. We can digitize the surgical count, we can keep track of trays, and we can keep track of the inventory in a case calculating the exact cost of a surgical case. We can also assemble dashboards, utilizing Bosk and Whisker plots here shown for operative times to allow administrators to drill down on outlier cases and figure out what outcomes are associated with those cases and what led to those things without observing, without having high-level consultants to perform this task, and without overburdening nursing to collect the information. It turns out that surgery centers need to constantly reevaluate their bottom line. And because they're reevaluating their bottom line, this is a great time for us to capitalize on just the low hanging fruit. If we look at reducing inventory waste or personnel inefficiency by just 10%, we can deliver a net savings to an ambulatory surgery center of over $350,000 per OR. If we look at the market landscape, it's really broken down into two large groups. Medical record conglomerates, which basically use old subjective data and actually I don't think can innovate healthcare any longer. And computer vision players that take in objective data, but unfortunately have focused on me, the surgeon. We believe we need to use objective data in order to empower the entire surgical team to improve efficiency as well as safety and outcomes for our patients. Numerous leaders across many prominent institutions, Cleveland Clinic, Hospital for Special Surgery, Kaiser Permanente, and Stanford, 
believe that this is the fundamental new way to manage surgical operations. This is our deployed system in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the first functional operating room of the future. Tulsa, Oklahoma and the Oklahoma Surgical Hospital was so impressed with our system that they're now expanding from two functional systems to 20 in July of this year. Ambulatory surgery centers are now saying yes to end-site surgical and we're working with Spine and Sports Surgery Center here in Campbell, California on product market fit. And we already have a 55 OR distribution deal with a large medical device manufacturer under NDA, ready to run, and with over $2 million of ARR to be supplied to end-site surgical. Based on that traction and just gradual revenue growth, we expect in 2023 to have an exit ARR over $25 million with 29 functional systems installed by the end of the year. I will tell you as a surgeon, I am humbled by how hard this task is and what type of multidisciplinary team we needed to assemble to accomplish this. And so on behalf of that team, I wanna say thank you for giving me the opportunity to present Insight Surgical and the future of surgery to you today. Next, we'll have Deep Structure. Thank you. My name is Dr. Jared Weir. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Saginaw, Michigan, and I'm the chief medical officer and founder for Deep Structure. Deep Structure is a seed stage digital orthopedic company, and we specialize in a software suite that helps change the delivery of care in orthopedics. We were founded in 2019, and we developed our first prototype in 2021 became FDA registered in 2022, and our MVP has been finalized and went live in clinic at the end of last year. There's a four-man team of us, all in the orthopedic healthcare space. And the problem we're trying to solve is one that's facing practices like mine across the country. It's the headwinds that have formed in the modern day of orthopedics. These are things like falling reimbursement rates, staffing crisis, patient expectations that continually change, and physician dissatisfaction. So our platform is five technologies and one transformative experience. I joined my father's practice in 1986, and up until two years ago, we practiced the same way that he did. Nothing had changed. Despite that, 40 years of technologic improvement happened, and we just, as, as a medical and orthopedic community, seem to ignore it. And so we've layered in and brought in these technologies into this platform, and it starts with a mobile patient experience. This is uh, an app we call Eunice, and she interacts with the patient. I don't have a big staff, so Eunice helps collect all the patient data and helps interact with patients, and is really an extension of me. In addition to that mobile app, we layer on a remote patient monitoring. It's a hardware-less monitoring system where we're able to measure the knee range of motion using the IMUs in everybody's cell phones. And so we have 80-year-old knee replacement patients that are using their cell phones to measure their knees. This is helpful because there are some hardware solutions on the market and that's not universally adoptable for everyone, but everybody almost exclusively has a cell phone these days, even the people in the geriatric population. That stuff's great. That's what the prototype had, but um, it's not enough, to be honest. Doctors are very eager to move on to the next thing. And if you give them a dashboard to look at, it quickly becomes ignored. A third screen's impossible. So Smart X-Ray is the third pillar of our MVP that went live. And what we do is we take all of that data that Eunice collects, all the remote patient monitoring, and we synthesize it down and just summarize it in the very most important pieces. And then we overlay that on something I'm looking at 
already, which is the patient x-ray. And that's where smart x-ray comes on. And in addition to that, we can start pulling in the imaging data as well. The last piece is the digital phenotype, the artificial intelligence, which is sometimes referred to as a digital twin in other industries. But what we're able to do is take all of these data points and then create predictive models. And now, before I ever have discussed surgery with a patient, before I ever perform that surgery, I can start predicting what the outcomes will be. And we kind of all talk about that, but this is where it gets a little bit interesting. How do you define successful surgery? And if you've been in AI enough, you know the errors of picking an endpoint that's not actually what you want. There's videos on the internet of AI trying to race boats and the boats catching fire because you didn't actually teach the AI system what they should strive for. So we've defined surgical success, and that's one of our biggest improvements. The last thing is an asynchronous telehealth. You take those four pillars and then you actually deliver it to patients in a way that's accessible to them when and where they want it. Where we really have advantages is that we're surgeon-founded. From development to deployment is very fast. We can go right to the OR with one version to do a case. We can change the user interface on the next case and try different things. We're the first to market with this complete suite, and we're able to eliminate a work day a week for each surgeon. So with this platform, I can give myself a day. My case study, this is live. So we had a patient that was having troubles and we were able to intervene on them because they told Eunice and get that patient feeling better. Thanks. All right, and last we have Zuno. Hi everyone, I'm Alan McNichol, CEO of Zuno Medical. The OR suite generates on average 60% of the revenue on average for hospitals and 30% of the waste. And I'll come back to why the waste is important. There's a pretty big economic impact there. But the OR suite depends on a tremendous amount of instruments, devices being processed through steam sterilization. And when you look at things like total joints, it can be anywhere from eight to 14 on up of sets that are needed for one single procedure. And those types of procedures obviously have been growing quite considerably and will continue to do so with the aging population. But this antiquated way of sterile barrier detection, you can see there holding a blue wrap up to the light or rigid sterilization containers with polypropylene filters severely impacts the OR because they're not found until the patient's already in there and they're trying to open those up. So it often leads to delayed and canceled cases. There's been little to no innovation for decades, four decades in sterile containment systems. And again, these are all only found out, are they still kept sterile or not, typically when they're opened up in the OR. The Zuno Smart Container is a patented sterilization system. It has an instant sterile barrier verification, which I will show you. It received FDA de novo clearance, which was quite an extensive clearance. They were pretty skeptical that electronics could work inside the autoclave and will actually be big backlog hospitals and surgery centers that will begin sales trials next month. The problem right now is, again, the surprise that'll happen in the OR and a lot of inefficiencies built up that go all the way back to the device vendors through to the OR related to the current uncertainty with the sterile barrier system. So traditional blue wraps, there's one particular study showed that only 56% of the time, if there's a tear or a puncture, are they accurately identified, which is a bit of a scary thought on that. The sterile processing is typically one of the biggest constraints to doing more procedures, whether that be in a hospital or a surgery center. And more complex procedures are moving to those surgery centers, which typically do not have that sterilization capacity. Current containment systems basically create 
healthcare and efficiencies, as I mentioned, all the way back to the OEM vendors with duplicate sets, with a lot of opportunities for human error, additional inventory that's required. And I've been around the country quite a bit in Chicago, Kansas City, Southern California recently. Every single place is having problems with high staff turnover, particularly sterile processing where they're underpaid and under a lot of duress because of the importance in the OR, which ends up the retraining of some of these really laborious tasks that have a lot of opportunity for human error. Here's the current sterile barrier options. You've got the blue wrap kind of over on that side and typical rigid sterilization containers that were supposed to solve a lot of those problems, but in some cases they create their own. So the solution to these challenges is a Zuno smart container. Now, what does it mean to be a smart container? Leverage a standard autoclave to be able to create a verifiable vacuum seal. We have a control module on here that has digital pressure, temperature, and humidity sensors to track and identify what's happening with an autoclave. These valves are electromechanically controlled and they're open as they go in, so there's no obstruction for sterile inflow. You get optimal sterile inflow in and optimal moisture extraction out during the drying cycle. Far better than any other solution on the market. When it's done, it closes these valves at just the right time, creating that verifiable vacuum seal. You can see the green check mark there that tells you it's, it wipes away the surprises in the OR. In the OR and only in the OR, which is a very satisfying feeling, and that's how it's then opened just next to the sterile field, confidently being able to put the contents on the tray in there. So we have a simple time-saving design. It takes seconds to prep versus minutes for the others, eliminates the human error. Disposable components, ORs have $10 million a year, hospital, sorry, over $10 million a year in waste. Three billion of that is out of the OR. So it's a huge economic component. We offer them as a service, so there's no maintenance. And as stated, we have a far better means of getting that sterilant in, making sure the contents is sterilized and then extracting the moisture out. So we really are one of the key enablers to have a more efficient OR. We'll have about a question from each panelist to each company and keep them pretty tight answers, you know, pretty short. Thank you. So I love that you're a surgeon-founded business. I, I'm a big fan of solve the problems that you have. So really excellent stuff. The big question I have is, is really around your value prop. I think you were starting to get into what the value prop is and how that has impacted your practice. I so would love to learn more. The proposition is we change the way we deliver care so that patients' expectations are met with how they want to receive care, similar to they receive other services. The economics of that, I think you were going to get into that at the end of your... Yeah, so with the remote patient monitoring, my office does have an additional revenue stream. Plus with the cost savings, I'm saving money as a private practitioner. So from your presentation earlier, I was very impressed about your resource optimization model. I think that's a very smart way of addressing the challenges that you face. And I can see why you've built what you've built here. The big question, I guess, from an adoption perspective is what information and data goes into the digital phenotype and how much of it do you have in order to build trust with other physicians who might want to adopt the technology? Yeah, so there are thousands of data points that go in and I was already over on my time. Yeah, so it's everything from traditional data that you might expect, proms and things like that, to crazier stuff like People leave audio diaries for Eunice and we can analyze them for sentiment. And so it is a wide range to create these really deep digital phenotypes so you can put questions to it that you really want to know. But how many 
patients worth of data have you accumulated thus far? So we went live at the end of last year. So we're in the hundreds of patients, meaning on one, working our way to two. I appreciate the transparency. Yes. I have a more straightforward question, but actually maybe it's not, is I'd like you to go into more depth about how you define success. What you're doing is an area that I do kind of more basic research in, and I got to tell you that is the, as you've cited, one of the most frustrating aspects of it, the PROs are. It's a perception of an outcome. It's not an outcome. How are you guys getting around this? Because it is very hard. So I think we got it licked, and we'll get a beer and I'll talk to you. I'll talk to anybody who wants to know. But what you're asking is, how do you rectify objective success and subjective success in a way that makes sense, that's what we did. It's a long conversation. Hi, I'm Thorpe Davis. I'm also in private practice, so I have sort of more down-to-earth questions. So in your talk earlier, you said you're in the OR, you do two cases in a room, you interact with patients between cases. You still have to see all your new patients face-to-face the first time, correct? There's no virtual nature to that. So what you saw in the first talk was Dr. Jared, we are the practice. As chief medical officer, we do things a little different. So if you're talking about as a private practitioner, no, we can deliver preoperative care and treatment recommendations. And what happens is patients view it, and then it usually ends with something like, my staff will reach out with you and call, and the patient will say, yeah, I'm ready to proceed, or I'd like to come in and meet in person. That stuff is available through the telehealth platform of Deep Structure as our next version, which hopefully we'll get to by next quarter. So you would interact with somebody virtually, and the next time you would see them would be to do surgery? I could, yeah. For some patients, I could. And I had a patient that did something close to that. Think of it pretty simply. If you replace one person's shoulder and they want to come back two years later to talk to you about the other one and they are two hours away, they may just want to get a video visit where you review their x-rays and present that to them. And then they'll sign up for surgery and you meet them again for the first time in pre-op. Okay, cool presentation. Thank you. I love computer vision. You mentioned you were going live in sites locally in the Bay Area. And you know, my question is really about, as you discover product market fit, what are some of the sets of feedback that you're receiving? And how are you as an early stage company responding to that feedback? Is it easy with you know, the way you have your system set up? Yeah, so the system, actually, we've taken product market fit in from multiple circulating nurses. They interact with the interface as we digitize it. I think we've done over 100 circulating nurses. We take their feedback in because usability and adoptability are a primary thing. Additionally, we account for their anxieties, basically, because they're going to take computer vision into the operating room. So we blur their faces and name badges a priori, show that to them across our data set. Finally, product market fit is at the hospital and the administrator level. That's the buyer level. Basically, we meet with the hospital executive team and basically sit down and figure out what are the information that we're extracting for them correlates directly with revenue because that's what they want to see. So we're actively doing that right now. And then quick product question, if I may. How do you ensure super accurate counts when it comes to laps or instruments that might get occluded given that your cameras are sort of around the ceiling? There's multiple ways to do that. So with respect to occlusions, turns out hands are the most common occluding objects, so we account for that. And when it comes to system performance, realize people counting objects are only accurate 75% of the time. So they're wrong 25% of the time. That's how common a miscount is. Turns out, say with laparotomy sponges, we're accurate over 90% of the time. The way we do that is we place them in parallel. Humans help the CV system become more accurate, and the CV system identifies when humans miscount. So we get to a 2% accuracy rate. 
25 times, say, 10. So at the end of the day, they're summative and we put them next to each other. That allows us to correct ourselves automatically. Dr. Manitoula, it was a fascinating presentation. The technology is super cool. My questions largely around how have you made the decisions to focus on what you're focusing on? Because the application of the technology is yeah. broad and quality control in the operating room is the kind of... Number one. Right? Yeah. I'll tell you, the market told us. So I started this as an object detector, something that would be able to problem keep patients really safe with needles and lap sponges or the most dangerous objects. The easiest way to manage safety for hospitals is to ignore it and to turn it into a risk decision based on money versus risk. So quickly we pivoted our models to the most valuable thing in the room, the work of the people, and how to present that to people in a nice way where we could assemble higher performing teams and talk about quality without outing poor decisions or without, so how do we create quality? We anonymize people, we get them to talk about procedures and performance in a way that values them, rewards them, incentivizes them, nudges their behavior. This is what every hospital system wants. So in a sense, we created a behavioral change engine by looking at people as opposed to an object detector that we could bolt on later. Which I think is smart and you'll ultimately build trust yes. in your Number technology, one. then you'll probably start to talk about surgeon behavior inside this. this surgeon the behavior, room. rep behavior. So the answer is if, if it's not adopted by the people in the room, they don't love it. It doesn't make their work better every single day. They're not going to adopt it. And so at the end of the day, we're very cognizant of the fact that by going to people, we need to make sure that they get value out of the device in the room and on the bottom line. I was mentoring a company that was working in an earlier stage version of this, and they ended up with a billion-dollar exit to one of the large medtech companies. So congratulations. We're working on it. Love the concept. Love the idea. A little bit of a lead-up to the question, but I'll frame the question first, which is I want to know specifically, really granularly, what features do you have right now that are delivering the value? Because this is like an age-old problem of you got to deliver value now to trade for the video. There's tons that you can do with that video beyond, you know, needle counts, sponge counts, things yeah. like that. But my guess is people aren't buying it right now for a needle and a sponge count. It's the future. So what do you got right now? So everyone who measures operative time is conflicted. We have a model that's highly accurate at estimating surgical time utilizing a model, and it didn't take that much video to get it. Associating data with that in that dashboard to drill down on who was in the room, what was the cost of that room, what were the items brought into that room, what were the outcomes in the future of those outlier performances is exactly what the hospital knows. That's what they're buying right now. Is there any thought about a live feedback? You know, obviously, infection prevention is great. We have six operating rooms in my private practice just in our city. I think we have 30 total in our practice. We don't have a lot of infections because those patients are going to the hospital. But the fear is leaving something in the patient. But it's not helpful unless you know it before the patient is sewn up. Is there any thought of how to use this to do something that's proactive at the time rather than reviewing it later? Yeah, I'll give you two answers to that. I think initially, because we're going to place this in synergy with people, we don't know how much we can bug them in that room. Okay, we know that when the nurse bugs us for that particular thing that might not be retained. The answer is we handle it as a stocks and flows problem. Counting 10 lap sponges or 10 needles on the back table actually protects no one. Just makes us feel great on a piece of paper. It's a stocks and flows problem and we basically play Clue. We look for objects to be lost from our tracker. Those objects are either on the floor, under a drape, or in the patient. When they get lost in the patient, we make sure, we keep those in a folder, we make sure that those return. 
that's how we keep them safe. Initially, we'll just watch that, and eventually we'll prompt you when that's there. I think you can do the same thing with respect to almost any other object that enters the patient, so don't think that's restricted to lap sponges or needles. The key here is we might want that as surgeons. The administrator isn't buying that right now. So I think that that is a second system or a third safety system that bolts on in the SaaS software now. If we don't hit revenue fast, nobody's going to buy it. One last question. What about data access? Because you're obviously training like tons of models and annotating all this data. Is that baked into your business model when you deploy your system that you get access to all that data you're collecting? Yeah. So we basically, as much data can stay on the hospital side as possible, but we do something other than blurring the faces and name badges, we create a non-discoverable data set. As we break that up into our particular models or into particular annotations, we only save the annotations that make our models more performant. So as you look back, you can't discover anything, but that also gives us a level of anonymity inside of that data on top of the blurring. Very, very cool that you did a de novo respect. Those are hard. Yeah, well, we weren't given a choice, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they are hard. Yeah. Yeah, so coming out of the de novo, what are the insights you gained around your platform? And sub part of that is this platform, you, you talked about electronics going into an autoclave, like what else can you do with that? So much. A lot that I can't necessarily talk about because some of we're still filing some IP for, but we do see this as a platform that initially is solving a key problem of guaranteeing you know, a sterile barrier is intact when it goes into the OR, but there's a whole bunch of things on that. One of my pet peeves is this little chemical indicator that goes into every tray set that gets sterilized that turns at 80 degrees C when it's either 132 or 135 C that has to be hit, and yet the entire industry says, did that change color, and then I'm okay. Um, I see people stacking containers in the autoclave, running them, and because the indicator changes, they think it's okay on that side of it. So some scary stuff kind of going on in that. There's a lot we can do to confirm what happened inside that autoclave chamber. We have kind of determined that both the FDA and the industry is probably not ready for that yet, but something very, if you imagine we have a digital temperature sensor and digital pressure sensor in there, very easy for us to actually determine those things. So that's a hint of some of the things to come. So I understand the attraction to the space. There's something to solve there. And there's a massive total addressable market when you think about the number of trays. That yes, there is. Steam sterilization every single day yep. in this country and around the world. So yep. I understand it. What's your insight about why previous attempts to change this market away from Blue Rat have failed? And why you? Why now? First of all, there's a lot of things that have changed related to electronics and sensors that can operate at very high temperature environments that didn't exist before. And so I think that's one of the, that, that are actually a lot more economical now than they were previously. I also think at times there's been potentially people thinking about that and they go, we're going to Wi-Fi connect all of these things and do some things that sound great, but actually cost a lot in power budget and other costs create adoption barriers for hospitals because you have to go through their IT department and things of that nature. We tried to really look at where's the highest value proposition that we can have and how do we eliminate as many of those adoption barriers. And I think that's a big key as to why the market's ready for us right now. Yeah, as an investor, I would be very interested, and I don't need an answer today, in your business model because this technology either succeeds yeah. big or fizzles out based sure. on the right business model. Well, it's a subscription service, so there's no way I want the hospitals managing that. And one of the things I did very early on before joining up with the company was really to vet that. And I think when they see it and they know that they don't have to deal with it, actually, it's usually a very comforting thing for them. So I think it's going to be a big... I come from the software background, so recurring revenue models are very attractive to me. 
Narrow, but I think important question. My OR table uh, torn down, case delayed because of bio burden. And I feel like that is most times for folks that don't know what bio burden is. It's if there's a fleck of maybe bone cement, maybe bone, maybe some unidentified black object that you just don't know what it is and you got to sure. tear the table down. Does your technology address bio burden? It doesn't at this point, no. I mean, I do think there are some aspects that we have in mind when a tray is being packed where we could look at some of those things. It might lean on some of the technologies that other people are talking about within that. But at this point, no. And again, I think from a standpoint of proving that electronics can work in an autoclave and that we're identifying bio burden correctly was probably an FDA hurdle I didn't really want to climb first go. So you need to put Insight Surgical inside the autoclave. <laughs> well, I actually do think there's a lot of opportunity between what we're doing kind of within that. Part. I think it's super cool. And if you Thank need you. a beta site, we'll be it for you. Love it. Where are you at? In Virginia. All okay, Virginia. that's all right. I can travel. A few questions. Is it AAMI approved yet? Is it stackable? So when I look at those, we have one surgeon sure. who uses 20 trays for a total sure. hip in or outpatient. And our room to store stuff is small. So if you said you're going to give me 30 of those, unless I can stack them, I'm in trouble. So, and also only, what breaks on them when they break? So not only are they stackable, but when they're not in use, the bases nest. And when I show that to people in OR and sterile processing, they go, wow. They just think that's kind of one of the best, one of the coolest things on it. And if you come out to our table, I'll be happy to show you that. Sorry, what was the other question? AAMI approved. Uh, so, I mean, it's actually FDA is the one that you kind of have to get. Amy kind of has some other things. So we're now on a working group with Amy that's defining transport protocols. And one of the important things for us to be there is we got that de novo. There's a new classification of sterilization container called sterilization container with electronic monitoring. And we're the only game in town in that. We have a utility patent that will keep us to be the only game in town. And we need to be there for, so Amy actually understands there's a different approach for this. It does has no porous barriers. They can be transported much more easily. And in fact, our first paying customer is one of the OEM vendors that is looking at offsite sterilization and delivering these into ASCs kind of through that. So we think there's a huge opportunity for us in that. We are working with Amy on that. And again, it's, you know, we got to use the chemical indicators and the other protocols. Sorry, I know we got to go. So Terrific. Right. Wow. Great startups. Thank you for listening to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. If you find the talks and this presentation as incredibly informative and topical as we did, please do share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a nice review on your podcast player of choice. It would mean a lot if you did. 